0: There's a great little book that I would encourage you to to pick up if you've never read it before, haven't heard of it. It's a, by a man named Randy Alcorn and it's a book the book called The Treasure Principle. How many of you are familiar with that book by the way? a handful of you. Outstanding book. I'm going to reference it a few times in in our message this morning, but I want to start by by telling you a story that Randy told in that book about a visit uh, that he and his wife made to Egypt. Yes, our kids are all headed out. Thank you so much to our volunteers who are leading that. So Randy and his uh, wife went to Egypt, and while they were there, um, he recounts seeing the sun-scorched tombstone of William Borden as well as the magnificent tomb of King Tut. Borden was a Yale graduate and the heir to great wealth, yet he rejected his life of ease in order to bring the gospel to Muslims. Refusing even to buy a car for himself, Borden gave away hundreds of thousands of dollars to missions. After only four months of zealous ministry in Egypt, he contracted spinal meningitis and died at the young age of 25. The epitaph on Borden's grave describes his love for God and the sacrifices he made for Muslim people and ends with this unforgettable phrase, apart from faith in Christ, there is no explanation for such a life. Elkhorn goes on to write that from Borden's grave, they went with their friends to visit the Egyptian Museum in Cairo, and there they saw the famous tomb of King Tut. King Tut, as you may recall, was only 17 when he died. He was buried with solid gold chariots and thousands of golden artifacts. His gold coffin was found buried within golden tombs, within golden tombs. While the ancient Egyptians believed in an afterlife, one where they could take things with them into that life, earthly treasures, the reality is all of his earthly treasures that were intended for his eternal enjoyment stayed right where they were put for more than 3,000 years until Howard Carter discovered that burial chamber in 1922. The contrast between the two graves is stark. Borden's was obscure, dusty, and hidden in a back street littered with garbage. Tut's tomb was glittered with unimaginable wealth. And where are these two men now? The one who lived in opulence and called himself king is living in the misery of a Christless eternity, while the one who lived a modest life in service to the one true king is enjoying everlasting reward in his Lord's presence. Tut's life was tragic because he was fooled by the allure of wealth. Borden's life was triumphant because he understood that he would leave every material possession behind. And so instead, he spent his life focused on laying up treasures in another world. As we continue in our series through the book of James, and we draw within just a couple of weeks of finishing, we come to yet another convicting and challenging passage whose focus is on the dangers of wealth. I'm going to warn you in advance, there is no good news in this passage. There is no hope. There is no call for repentance. It's just a harsh reminder of how wealth can destroy lives. None of us, myself included, enjoy sermons like this and on this topic, but if we're faithful to the Word of God and reading its entire counsel, we can't avoid this uncomfortable topic. In the Gospels alone, roughly 15% of everything Jesus Christ said relates to money and possessions. That's more than his emphasis on the topics of heaven and hell combined. So why did Jesus spend so much time talking about money and possessions? Because there is a fundamental connection between our spiritual lives and how we think and handle money. We might try to separate our faith and our finances, but Scripture teaches they are, in fact, inseparable. As we prepare to open our text this morning, here's the big idea for this week. If you're following along in the outline you were given as you came in, it's this. God is sovereign over wealth and requires our obedience to his will in all use of it. God is sovereign over wealth and requires our obedience to his will in all use of it. Open your Bibles with me if you have them, or your Bible apps, if those, that's what you use to the book of James chapter 5. We'll read verses 1 through 6. I'm reading to you from the English Standard Version. James chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. Come now, James writes, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. ...of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. As we open this passage today, we again have little to no context as to what exactly was going on... ...in the specific churches that were addressed here... It's safe, however, to conclude that the majority of Christians to whom James wrote during this first century were not themselves rich. They suffered persecution to include financial persecution because of their faith. In a day and age in which the worship of false gods was so closely tied to the financial system, as we saw when we looked at the seven churches in the book of Revelation, being faithful to your Christian walk often meant financial sacrifice as you were excluded from circles where money was made if you were really going to be faithful. With that in mind, most scholars agree that this text is not primarily addressed to the church. Rather, it's addressed rhetorically to unbelievers who are not receiving this letter. It's written to wealthy landowners outside the church, but it's written in such a way as to remind those in the church, particularly those who are not wealthy, of the dangers of wealth. It's as if James is speaking to outsiders, all the while intending those inside the church to listen in to his conversation. So this morning, whether or not you consider yourself wealthy, whether you're living on a fixed income or you have plenty of money, this passage has a word for you. The first warning we see in this passage is from verses 1 to 3. If you want to write it down in your outlines, it's this. Wealth can make us self-destructive. Wealth can make us self-destructive. I read this week about a man named Jack Whitaker who won the Powerball Lotto in 2002. Hardly a rags-to-riches story, Whitaker had built a $100 million company before his big win of $315 million. At first, things went well. Whitaker tithed on his winnings and was generous to a variety of charities. He reportedly gave a home, an automobile, and $40,000 in cash to the woman who sold him his Powerball ticket. All of his philanthropy, however, was not enough to curb his destructive behavior. Within a few years, Whitaker had been robbed, involved in scandals, bounced checks at casinos, and named in several lawsuits. But the worst was still to come. He's reported to have given his teenage granddaughter a $4,000 a week allowance. And he received his worst blow when that girl was found dead from an apparent drug overdose. The cause of all his troubles, claims Whitaker, was the Powerball Curse. James would undoubtedly agree with that assessment, for James shows us how wealth can make us self-destructive. It can lead us down paths that destroy not only our lives, but our very souls. That's what he gets at in these verses of our text. To those who think they have the best that life has to offer, James says, weep and howl. The terminology weep and howl is the same terminology that's used in Old Testament prophets when they write of the reaction of the wicked to the great day of judgment. Weeping is not just shedding tears, but it's expressing grief. And howling literally means crying out. Jesus spoke of these miseries to which James points the rich. In Matthew 8.12 and 13.42, Jesus told of a place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And in Luke 6.24, to the rich, Jesus said, woe to you, for you have received your consolation. Time and again, Scripture warns the wealthy about the miseries that wealth can bring. And now, James, Jesus' brother, reiterates that warning which was on the lips of Jesus, reminding the wealthy that they're headed down a path that leads to certain destruction. As if that message isn't heavy enough, though, James adds a final thought to this thread. You've laid up treasures in the last days. What's his point? It's this. Not only is hoarding your wealth to a degree that does no spiritual good wrong, but it's also just plain stupid in the day and age in which you live. The age of consummation has already broken in upon the world in Jesus. The kingdom of God is and is yet to come. It's already begun its arrival. And those who hoard possessions and money, they lay up treasures here as if their possessions will live forever. Doing so is foolish in the last days. So what do we make of this? Should you and I sell all of our possessions? Should we give it to the poor as Jesus told that rich young ruler and go and live on nothing? Well, maybe that's what God's calling you to do. I I don't want to assume that he's not, but I don't think that's what he's calling the majority of us to do. Jesus' point and James' point is that wealth can control you, but it doesn't have to be that way. For it's not money that is the root of all evil, it's the love of money that is the root of all evil. It's not wealth that brings us eternal damnation, but the misuse of wealth. Here's how James shows that. He goes on to write about the misuse of wealth in his day. Your riches, he writes, are rotted or spoiled. They should have been used to feed the poor. Instead, they've been stored until their shelf life, as it were, has expired. Your garments are moth-eaten. In other words, you have so many clothes that you can't begin to use them all. They should have been used to clothe the poor and the naked, and your gold and silver are in such excess that they sit around corroding, collecting rust. That money could have been used to minister to the poor and the hurting, and that very corrosion, that rust, warns James, will eat your flesh like fire. An encouraging picture, isn't it? A picture that points to hell. James' point is clear All your wealth has done absolutely no good for you or for anyone else. You've stored it up while you should have put it to use. It's not that producing wealth is wrong. Rather, it's not employing that wealth to the glory of God where the moral wrong is found. Just as was the case for the unlucky Powerball winner, it's the case for you and I. Wealth can point to us in a direction of sure and certain misery, a path that leads to eternal damnation. Wealth can make us self-destructive. As we continue in our passages, we find the second warning. It's in verse 4, and it's this, wealth can make us self-centered. James writes in verse 4, Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. First century Palestine, before 70 AD, had witnessed an increasing concentration of land in the hands of a small group of wealthy landowners. And as a result, the the small lots of many farmers were assimilated into these larger estates. And these farmers were forced to earn their living by hiring themselves out to rich landlords. Deuteronomy 24 commanded owners of land not to oppress the hired servants. Instead, they were to pay them fairly and promptly. Such warnings are also found in the book of Leviticus and in the book of Malachi. You see, these workers needed their daily income to provide their daily bread for their families. They literally were living paycheck to paycheck, day to day. And in this text, James rhetorically addresses these wealthy landowners and says, The wages that you kept back, the wages that belonged in the pockets of your workers, they've cried out, Your money has talked. And it's spoken directly to God. The greed of these wealthy landlords had made them cruel. And if ever their focus were outward, if ever it had been focused on others, the more they amassed, the more their focus turned on themselves. You see, wealth can do that. It can make us self-centered. To them, James says, that money you've kept back... It's cried out to God, but as if to put some fear in anyone who may not take this seriously, James adds that the cries of those wages have reached not just God, but the Lord of hosts, The word for hosts here is the transliteration of the Hebrew word, which means army. So the Lord of hosts pictures the God of the Almighty, the powerful commander of a great army, as it were. It's none other than the God of angel armies that the contemporary songwriter writes about. It's this God, the great commander of armies, that hears the cries of the wages that belong to the poor. And such knowledge ought to instill fear in the hearts of anyone who thinks of cheating someone out of the resources they need and have earned. But wealth can do that to you. It can make you self-centered. It can turn your hearts away from the needs of others and to your own desires. It can make you less empathetic and less compassionate. Wealth, James warns, can make you self-centered. Look again at the text now in verse 5, if you still have it open. As James continues his warnings, you have, he writes, lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. Here's the warning. It's right there in the text. Wealth can make us self-indulgent. The term that's used here for self-indulgence is used in 1 Timothy 5, 6, and in Ezekiel sixteen forty nine to describe the people of Sodom who were condemned, among other reasons, for their prosperous ease and for not aiding the poor and the needy. James seems to be talking to people who have grown increasingly self-indulgent at the expense of their workers. Their greed has fed their own desires while blinding them to the needs of others. And the more they have, the more blind they have become. There's a cause and effect in this warning. James continues, because the rich have lived in luxury, they have fattened their hearts in the days of slaughter. It's a vivid description meant to point to the day of judgment. The imagery is unnerving As if those who indulge in this way have fattened themselves like cattle for the kill. To anyone who has an ear, James warns, wealth can make us self-indulgent. There's still one more warning in this passage. It's this. Wealth can make us self-righteous. It can make us self-righteous. Look with me at the last verse, verse 6, and I'll explain what I mean here. You have, James continues, condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. The word for condemned here comes from the courtroom in that day and age. It means to pass a guilty verdict in a very personal way. Imagine a scenario something like this. A poor man works for two weeks for a wealthy landowner who promises him a certain wage. Every day when he goes to collect his daily wage after those two weeks in order to purchase his daily bread to feed his hungry children, the landlord has an excuse as to why he can't pay him that day. Perhaps the landlord is off and the foreman is dealing with it and he doesn't have the permissions to access the account. Maybe his money is tied up in investments and that poor worker continues to be assured that all will be made right, that they will catch up with him. The poor man has no other job options, and so he continues to work. He continues daily, waiting on these badly needed wages. But one day, after several weeks without pay, he shows up and the work site is closed. The gates are locked, and there is no sign of the wealthy landowner or his managers. And without the overdue pay, the poor man is now destitute, and his children will go hungry. So the poor man scrapes up what little money he has, and he takes the wealthy landowner to court. He hopes for some justice. He just wants what he worked for. But we all know how this story ends. The rich man has a high-price attorney who knows how to craft the most powerful arguments. The poor man has none. The rich man knows the judge, and it's been rumored has paid bribes to judges to ensure the verdict that he wants. The rich man is connected to the media so he can plant articles to make himself look good. He can turn the truth upside down so the poor man has no chance. And when the judgment is made, not only does the rich man win, but the poor man is ordered to repay the rich man's legal expenses, and because he can't, he's sent to prison, bankrupting him in the process and sending his family into deeper poverty. Meanwhile, the rich man laughs about it with his buddies on the golf course. The poor man is as good as dead. It's a form of judicial murder, and it happened in that day and age. Dare I say it still happens. So when James says you condemn and you kill the righteous person, he's saying you're perverting the legal system to destroy the poor. You use the laws for your own good and the detriment of others and you make yourself feel good about it. But don't miss the descriptor James uses for the poor man. He calls him a righteous person. Now some have suggested James is talking about Jesus here, but I'm not in that camp of thought. I think he could be referring to the fact that the rich are the ones who drag the poor Christians who are righteous to court and who persecute them, as we've learned earlier in the book. And in the story I just told you, the poor man was righteous. He was upright in his claims, while the rich man was wrong and dishonorable. Yet the rich man turns right and wrong on their heads by perverting justice. The rich man makes himself the righteous one placing the blame on the poor man. Proverbs 14:12 reminds us that there is a way that seems right to a man but in the end it is the way to death. To those who are wealthy who are certain they're living the good life and justify their cruelty and the mistreatment of the poor whether directly or indirectly, James issues this harshest of warnings. The poor can't begin to resist the might of the rich, and sadly, wealth can make a person think that their behavior is just. It can lead us to act in ways that seem right to us, but in the end lead to death. Wealth can make us self-righteous when what we need is to be clothed in the righteousness of the one who had no place to lay his head. Those who received this letter must have thought back to the Old Testament prophets because it sounded so much like them. Its words are harsh like those of the fire-breathing preachers of old. It's a scathing indictment to the rich. It offers no hope, but it simply announces the judgment of God. There is no call to repentance. There is no good news at all. And I have a hunch that James' initial readers must have instinctively assumed he was talking about someone else and probably were grateful that his finger wasn't pointed at them this time. And perhaps you'd say the same today. Maybe you're working a minimum wage job, or you're living on a social security income. Perhaps you're on public assistance. And so to you, the gap between what your bank account says and that of the rich today is so great that you can't begin to imagine James addressing you as one of the rich. But before James' poor readers dismiss this passage, or before you set it aside as inapplicable to your situation, consider a couple of implied warnings I would suggest to the poor. First, don't envy the rich. We like to do that, though, don't we? Boy, it'd be nice if we had that kind of income. Wouldn't it be nice if we lived in that kind of house? A 2012 Boston Globe article ask the following question, does money change you? Remember, this is written from a secular perspective, and the article reported as a mounting body of research is showing wealth can actually change how we think and behave, and not for the better. Rich people have a harder time connecting with others, showing less empathy to the extent of dehumanizing those who are different from them. They are less charitable and generous. They are less likely to help someone in trouble, and they are more likely to defend an unfair status quo. If you think you'd behave differently in their place, meanwhile, you're probably wrong. These aren't just inherited traits, but developed ones, wrote the author. Money, in other words, changes who you are. The article went on to summarize research that shows that money speaks Or money makes people less friendly, less sensitive to others, and less compassionate. What this secular article underscored, Scripture has always taught, while money in and of itself is neutral, morally speaking, it can change us for the worse. And not only can it make us an ugly person, but even worse, it can fool us into believing that we don't need God It can make us self-reliant. It can cause us to believe that we are self-sovereign. And as we've learned this morning, it can lead us down a destructive and eternally damning path. So if you're not among the rich, don't envy the rich this morning. Here's the second implied warning to the poor. Don't become materialistic no matter how little or how much you have. Elkhorn, again in his book The Treasure Principle, wrote about a PBS television special called Affluenza that addressed the modern-day plague of materialism. The program revealed that the average American shops six hours a week while spending 40 minutes playing with his or her children. Furthermore, in a given year, more Americans declare bankruptcy than graduate from college. And in 90% of divorce cases, arguments about money play a prominent role. Ladies and gentlemen, the problem is not in the money. The problem isn't in how little you make or how much you make. The problem is in the human heart. The heart of the problem is always the problem of the heart. The problem lies in what we treasure. My enemy is not my bank account, but it's the man in the mirror looking back at me. The truth is, no matter how rich or how poor we are, we can be driven by the love for money. It can consume us and it can control us. So whether you're rich or you're poor, the warning remains the same. Don't allow possessions or the desire for things to control you. As we prepare to close this morning, I've got to be very honest with you. This was a tough text for me this week. As many of these passages have been, it wasn't just tough from a preaching standpoint, although it presented its challenges in that it had no good news, no hope to offer, it was tough from a personal standpoint because it hit home. If you're connected with me on social media, you may know that I've recently begun a real estate company. I've been working on the side, some might call it my side hustle. I'm beginning to invest in homes. And we're looking to rehab them and rent them with a the goal of building long-term security for our family as well as affording us the chance to support church plants, missions, and care for orphans. But here's the problem. I know that this is a slippery slope. I know how quickly building wealth can lead to a desire that can take over my heart. And I don't want to slide down that slope. I don't want to become self-reliant. I don't want to be consumed by greed. I don't want it to make me self-destructive, self-centered, self-indulgent, or self-righteous. I want to keep money in its proper place and use it for God's glory. But I'm reminded over and over again by Scripture and just by looking around me of how difficult and how tricky that can be. How about you? Does this passage scare you? Chances are, while some of you would identify as poor, most of us are not. God has given considerable material blessings to most of us, and most of us can all too easily identify with these warnings. We've seen them in others, and we've seen them in ourselves. So what's the answer? Is it giving up everything and living in total poverty? Again, Who am I to decide that for you? Maybe Jesus is calling you to do so. But I don't think that's the case for most of us. Instead, there's an antidote for the disease of materialism and the trappings of wealth. It's not making less, but rather investing in the right place. Laying up your treasures in the right place. Elkhorn, again, in his book, The Treasure Principle, writes this. Imagine yourself near the end of the Civil War. You're a northerner stranded in the south by war. You plan to move home when the war is over. And while in the south, you've accumulated lots of confederate currency. Suppose you know for a fact that the north is going to win the war soon. What will you do with your confederate currency? If you're smart, you'll immediately cash in your excess confederate currency for U.S. currency and the only money that will have any value after the war. You'll keep enough confederate currency to meet your short-term needs. As a Christian, Alcorn writes, you have inside knowledge of an eventual worldwide upheaval by Christ's return. This is the ultimate insider trading tip. Earth's currency will become worthless when Christ returns or when you die, whichever comes first. And either event could happen at any moment. My friends, the proper use of wealth, and I would suggest the surest way for a Christian to avoid the trappings of wealth, is to use wealth as a blessing to others. It's to give generously, extravagantly, outrageously to those in need. To recognize God's sovereignty over wealth and your need to surrender to his will, in the use of all of it. If you want to steer clear of the self-destructive, self-centered, self-indulgent, and self-righteous tendencies of wealth, employ, I would challenge you, joyful giving. For when we use our resources in these ways, we store up treasures in heaven, where Jesus said in Matthew 6.20, neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. Would you pray with me?